I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I am Abby Kenny, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today we are breaking the Chuck and Abby streak we've been having recently by welcoming a returning guest, Daniel Harrigus, senior editor for Strong Towns. Welcome back, Daniel. Good to be back, Abby. And we also have Chuck. Hi, Chuck. Hey, we're upgrading this week is how I would look at it. Upgrading, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, I'm glad we are because we are covering an article that is a little bit over my head in some ways, and it's, it's pretty interesting, so I'm looking forward to getting into it. It is called, If You Sell a House These Days, The Buyer Might Be a Pension Fund. It was published in the Wall Street Journal, written by Ryan DeZimber. In this article, Ryan explains that in many of the nation's top markets, one in five houses sold are bought by someone who never moves in. Yield-chasing investors are snapping up single-family homes to rent out or flip, competing for housing with ordinary Americans and driving up home values. One real estate investment firm interviewed in this article warned that we may be facing a speculative investor-driven housing bubble bolstered by limited housing supply, low rates, a global reach for yield, and the institutionalization of real estate investors. Despite the economic recession of 2020, the market for single-family homes is continuing to boom, and this might be part of the reason why. In this situation, which the article touches on a bit, and I kind of want to go into, is a bit, little bit reminiscent of the 2004 and 2005 Uh, pre-recession era. And the author frames how what we're seeing today might be connected to the housing bubble of the 2000s. Put simply, the housing crash created a situation where millions of Americans were financially underwater and unable to get a mortgage. And at the same time, the market for rental housing became incredibly profitable for firms that were able to purchase up all of those foreclosed homes. Today, major investment firms are now getting into the home building game with plans to develop major subdivisions of homes specifically for investor buyers that want to rent out the properties. So what can we expect the outcome to be when a growing number of homes aren't actually owned by residents? One of the cornerstones of American life is seems to now be swallowed up by these investment funds, and many of whom would benefit greatly from having a country of renters. So I want to start with you, Daniel, based on kind of your own internal narrative about what's wrong with housing or how housing is or is not functioning. How does this dynamic inform your thinking of the housing market and all the problems that we're seeing and maybe solutions that we might think about when cultivating strong towns. Boy, my my narrative of what's wrong with housing, you got a hundred <laughs> hours. I mean, I think that it's funny because like with these headlines to me, it feels like there's both something very new happening and something very old happening. I bought my house in Sarasota, Florida five years ago. And at the time we were told by our realtor, you should expect to have to move fast because about two thirds of all home sales in this neighborhood are cash sales to investors, no mortgage involved. 
And they usually, uh, homes are usually on the market for one or two days. And we were sort of astonished and horrified to learn that. And sure enough, we put an offer on the house we ended up buying like immediately after looking at it and only got it because the seller wanted specifically to sell to someone who was going to live in it. We were not the highest offer, but we wrote a very heartfelt letter um, introducing ourselves and our situation and how we hope to raise a family here. And that, that was the, but I, that's why I love you, Daniel. I, I, <laughs> you are so genuine to your principles, man. <laughs> it, I, well, it, that it was also a very calculating move and we were coached as to how to write this letter. I mean, this is what the seller seems to want, but that was something that was going on in my neighborhood at the time. And it was sort of a hotspot neighborhood for it. It was a place that was sort of, I wouldn't say gentrifying, but coming out of a period of serious blight. And so there was a lot of flipper activity. I, I don't have the statistics to say whether we would qualify as gentrifying or not, but, but it was sort of, it felt like an isolated case. Like you're dealing with this, all of these investors swimming in the water because you're buying in this one neighborhood. And these were people who, you know, it wasn't big REITs. It wasn't pension funds. It was individual operators. The stuff I'm reading in the headlines now feels very different in terms of who's doing it and the scale and the infrastructure they've built around it. I do, however, think it's part of a very old story. And that very old story was encapsulated, the best I've ever seen, in um, an essay published by the Sightline Institute a couple months ago with the title, The Problem with American Housing Policy is that it's not about housing, it's about real estate. And that ever since I mean, I think charitably you could say the 1930s and the rise of the the 30-year self-amortizing mortgage, but arguably before that, that we've got a whole policy apparatus that is designed to make the price of housing go up and up and up because it's one of the pillars of our economy and because housing has been marketed for generations as an investment vehicle. This is your retirement nest egg. And it was marketed to individuals and to owner-occupiers as an investment vehicle, but it's not really a surprise in the grand scheme of things that when you have a whole policy apparatus designed to make sure the price of housing goes up and up and up and doesn't fall, or if it falls, it doesn't fall for long, that of course Wall Street's going to get into that game. I suspect that there are some factors sort of unique to where we are right now in the macro economy that are driving this current trend of large-scale institutional investors sort of buying single-family homes in bulk. Um, I think Chuck could probably speak to that better than I could. There's that meme that is out there of the two astronauts in space where the one is uh, has some revelation and the other one shoots them in the back of the head and be like, you know, yeah, that's what it was always all along. Always was. <laughs> right, always was. And it, it's, you know, there's a little bit of – you know, I think in this housing market, it's like, well, housing is about supply and demand or housing is about, you know, people getting into homes and housing is about families and housing is about American dream. And then the, the astronaut is like, housing is about capital flow. And the guy <laughs> like, you know, always was and like shoots him in the back of the head. I, I, <laughs> Daniel and I've been having this interesting discussion because I, I feel like, you know, we've been having this for, for months now. I feel like there is the kind of two different worlds when it comes to housing and and we've named we've dubbed one like housing twitter which i, I think is very unfair but it's like the 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 policy advocates and the people who are like we need rent control and we need uh to change this single family zone to something else and and we need this type of inclusionary zoning change 
and and they're very much like housing advocate type people and and I get them I, I went to grad school with them and and I think their heart's in the right place but there's this other world of housing which knows none of that and cares about none of that and they are people who are basically investors they they are just money managers and they know more about interest rates and bond flows and capital flows and arbitrage and that's how they look at this they're playing in the same space they're like walking around next to each other bidding on the same things working in the same place but they're playing by two like very different rules very different games with very different things at stake and the, the this has always been this has always been this way the thing that is so much different now, and I, I do think is different than 2004, 2005, in, in 2004, 2005, what we did is we juiced the buyer of homes and we allowed people to get into financial products that were, in a sense, you know, nuclear. They were, they were designed to blow up. They were beyond their capacity to actually do. And, and we shouldn't have had these products that we were getting people into. What is going on now is that we're giving sophisticated investors gargantuan amounts of cheap money and then pointing that funnel towards housing. And so it's not like the regular person has a chance to take on a, you know, interest only, no doc, all, you know, go through the whole list of acronym loans and compete with the Wall Street person. The, the average person has to put down payment, has to have real interest, you know, a, an interest rate that's closer to a market rate, does not get things subsidized, does not, they in a sense are hamstrung because the investor is given tons of capital at really cheap subsidized rates, are not required to, you know, do anything that a normal, and are just able to go in and absolutely destroy this market. We have tilted the playing field so far towards the investor now, that what you're seeing is that they are actually starting to dominate the market. And someone a couple of weeks ago posted a chart of housing prices in Japan versus housing prices in the US. And they're like, see, Japan is better at uh, you know zoning and allowing units to be built and da 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 da. And okay, like, I, I get it. that's like a really nice narrative. But if you overlay on that chart, the chart of the U.S. stock market and the Japanese stock market, it looks the exact same as the housing market. And, and my theory or my suggestion is that that's because they're driven by the same dynamics, which is capital flow. Yeah, when I was reading this, I I kept coming to this like doomsday scenario of how this plays out because it does feel a little bit like a David and Goliath kind of situation when when you're looking at, you know, housing advocates trying to address the situation, we have all these different remedies that we talk about, but they don't ultimately address the core of the problem, which seems to be financialization. Is that the correct word for that? Yeah. <laughs> and and at the local level, like we hear for calls for inclusionary zoning or rent control. And it's, you know, we're trying to artificially set prices in an environment where that's maybe not the best remedy for trying to solve this problem. And at the federal level, you're seeing calls for increased credits for first-time home buyers, which, which in my thought would, in theory, further increase demand. And increased demand when there's not a high supply of housing could make the housing market more competitive and lead to higher home prices, which it's not necessarily remedying the core problem that we're seeing with these investors. 
So we've talked a lot about the federal government expanding public housing as well as another way to kind of remedy the cost of housing. And in my opinion, I I fear that we are severely missing the mark on providing ownership options for the middle class and the American dream was really intended to be rooted on this idea that individuals and families would have ownership in a decentralized way. And in this article's framing, it seems that we are moving in the opposite direction where the housing environment would be owned by either the the federal government, public housing side of things, or these huge investment funds. So it's kind of like pick your landlord. (laughs) And Daniel, we talked a little bit about this offline, but it does kind of seem like we're regressing to a new form of feudalism. And it it seems hyperbolic, but when you're reading through this article, you kind of wonder, is this how it's going to play out? Will it stop at some point? Maybe the bubble will burst and housing will become less expensive and everybody can own housing again. What do you think? To, to the extent that the one of the big economic stories of the last 40, 50 years is consolidation of wealth um, at the top or just in fewer hands, you know, you have corporate consolidation, mergers, all of that. It's almost like the housing sector has been a little later to that game. And I mean, one thing that I think has changed, and I, I encourage you guys to push back if you think I'm off base with this, because I'm being a little speculative here, but it seems to me that up until very recently, it wasn't attractive for sort of Joshmo investor to own a bunch of residential real estate because there were big transaction costs involved in that and there were big kind of operating costs. It's not an appealing proposition unless you're renting out those homes and you have a rental income in addition to the the equity that you're building. And there wasn't really an apparatus to to get into that game at a large scale. So you I mean you had small-time landlords, mom and pop landlords might own a few rental homes, but there was sort of a natural limit on concentration of ownership. Yeah, it was a tough business, right? And it was a tough business. And now Joe Schmo Investor, it seems like technology has made it so you can actually own a thousand homes and you can outsource all of the property management and all of the the maintenance, like, you know, you somebody's handling that for you and you're collecting a check. Can I take it to the next step, Daniel? Yeah. Because I actually think this is where we're at. And I feel like the signs are pointing to this, right? So if you are a Wall Street investor and you are looking at the U.S. housing market, you have seen an asset that has appreciated by, depending on the market you're in, 6%, 8%, 10% a year for decades, okay, for a long period of time. Forget that it's housing. Just say it's it's an asset. It, it's gold. It's you know beanie babies. It is uh, oil fields. It is whatever you're investing in. You look and you've got this decades long track record of annual appreciation at rates that are six, eight, ten percent. You can go get money. You you can obtain capital at one percent, one and a half percent, two percent. It is a very good arbitrage to go get capital at low rates and park it in something that is returning at high rates and just wait a year, two years, five years, 10 years to get your return. On paper, this is fantastic. You can accelerate this all day long. In the real world, it stinks because it it literally takes housing off the market. But this is kind of the, the byproduct of having these distortedly low interest rates is now... Instead of this being a niche market where someone will, 
you know, wind up with a house and eke out a couple percent and, and, you know, only do it because they devote the time to maintaining the place. You can literally, you know, buy it, shutter it, have someone, some dude stop by once a week and check on it to make sure that, you know, something isn't broken or someone's not, you know, uh, broken in or living there. The pipes haven't burst and just ride this thing out and make four five, 6% a year on your capital being parked there. And it's actually someone else's capital. Well, Chuck, something that I wanted you to respond to was the pension fund aspect of this, because you've talked a lot about how pension funds are not sustainable and the issues around that. Is that what you think is playing out here, that pension funds are looking for somewhere to park some money so that they can keep it going? What are your thoughts there? If you start with the financial story and then work towards housing, as opposed to, you know, the, the, do the opposite, start with housing and then try to figure out the financial, the, the narrative becomes like really clear. If you're a pension fund, you have to get seven to 8% a year annual returns in order to meet your obligations. If you look at the Minnesota pension fund, which is one of the better funded ones in the country, our statewide pension fund, it projects returns of 8% a year indefinitely, and it still is 25% underfunded. And so it has to re- achieve those returns. How do you achieve those? Well, you don't go out and buy treasuries because those are now at you know 1.5% yield. You don't go buy municipal bonds because those are at 2.5% yield. We, we've driven down the yields on these things because we were trying to stimulate the economy, because we're trying to keep this debt cycle from, from bursting on us. And so we drive down these rates. That means that if you're running a pension fund, you have to do something more risky. You have to go further out. What investors call this is going out on the yield curve. Well, you may be uncomfortable investing in the NASDAQ and you may be uncomfortable investing in some pharmaceutical or some biotech company, but housing seems relatively safe, right? It's a good investment with a long track record and you can buy a leveraged you know, real estate investment trust and have your capital kind of multiplied by the leverage. And they will pour that into this very stable asset class, which by the way, is going up at really high rates. From an investment standpoint, this is great. This is genius. It's great. It's the only way you're going to make, you know, your 7%, 8% annual return that you have to have. From a human standpoint, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. Yeah. It is interesting to me that, the article talks about how these investors are really getting interested in home building of entire entire subdivisions, uh, which is fascinating because it seems that the that there's a level of investor that may be doing one-offs in urban contexts, buying a house here and there and building their portfolio that way. But to the Wall Street investors or the pension funds, it would make a lot of sense to just build an entire subdivision and that's your portfolio. And in a few years, it's going to go up a certain percent and there's expectations there. But going back to kind of the strong towns conversation and dynamic, in a lot of cases, the cities are fronting the infrastructure and they may not be aware of what's going on here. I mean, because it seems like that is something that local cities could do to combat that particular issue. But it's like, why why would taxpayers locally be using their money to support this kind of investment by, by fronting infrastructure and roads and all of those things? I mean, it just seems horrible. 
I think the question also is too, you know, what what are the downsides of having a real estate market where you only have big players operating? Because the big players operating work really well with the big finance, uh, but we can start to see some of the impacts of that. I wrote a piece for Strong Towns last year looking at I'm blanking on the name for it in Colorado, but it was in Florida, we call them community development districts, but essentially special tax districts for brand new exurban subdivisions that finance all of the construction, including all the infrastructure to serve this new development with debt that is then repaid by the, the buyers of the property. And I wrote about how these are just time bombs waiting to explode. And a bunch of them did explode during the last crash in Florida. 73% of these were in default by 2010. Because I think what happens is it does, it decouples the financing of the the building of new like physical housing from actual local demand. You know, it's sort of this pure investment product now where you can essentially you have access to the municipal bond market to issue these bonds to build this stuff that like it doesn't maybe locals are gonna end up moving into it, maybe they're not, but like it it ceases to matter so much if you've got Wall Street investors that can pocket some short-term money off of the... It's sort of distilling what's already been going on with the growth Ponzi scheme for decades. It's distilling it into this sort of purely extractive model that's so abstracted from what the point of a house is. I mean, the tools that cities have, and this is maybe the question you were getting at, Abby, the tools that cities have to push back against this are, to a large extent, it's the tools we have to push back against the growth Ponzi scheme model of development in the first place. That, To the extent that we think that growth consists of, well, let's just roll out the red carpet for people to build more and we're going to take the immediate tax windfall and we're going to figure out the rest of it later, then that's going to be exploited by, you know, regardless of why someone's building a subdivision, is it to sell it to um, retirees who want their nest egg is to, is it to sell it to a pension fund? Like from the city's perspective, if we're going to say, let's roll out the red carpet, we're going to build, we're going to build the roads. We're going to build the sewers. Cause this looks good to us. This looks like growth to us. The more we start to understand that this was a bad deal to begin with. I, I don't think it resolves all of the issues here because I think um, the phenomenon that we're talking about of big time investors buying housing is much bigger than, the story profiled in this Wall Street Journal article of like a whole subdivision that was built and immediately bought up. Like, I think that's still the exception to the rule. Um, well, you look at like what Blackstone started doing 10 years ago, and that was existing single family homes, scattered site, but buying up a portfolio of them because in aggregate they were this reliable income generator. I think the bigger issue is we need to combat the underlying policy forces that are designed to drive the price of housing up and up and up. And I mean, Chuck, you talk about the disconnect between the finance conversation and the housing advocacy conversation, and I absolutely agree. I think one place where there is there is some kind of core overlap that maybe isn't always articulated or appreciated is that there's a symbiosis between the policies that create scarcity through restrictive zoning, through regulations on development that create these neighborhood monocultures and then freeze them in amber and say, you can't evolve this to the next increment. Like there is a local policy apparatus that the, the pro housing advocates really like have in their sites that creates scarcity for the benefit of to a large extent owner occupiers who are, are the biggest land speculators in every city in terms of just the sheer volume of money. 
we can step back from the narrative that just says, well, it's all the NIMBY's fault to begin with. It's all these greedy homeowners who just don't want anyone else to live in their neighborhood because they want their home price to keep going up and up. Well, that has always existed in a symbiosis with the these financial forces. This is a whole system designed to keep the price going up. And the scarcity is part of that. So I don't think because financial actors are treating housing as an asset class and inflating it in that way, I don't think that means that the narrative about exclusionary zoning and all that doesn't matter. It's working in tandem. It's creating the environment in which you can extract all of this this economic rent from land ownership. I think that's exactly right. And I think the interesting thing is that when you go to the caricature of the yimby nimby, the yes in my backyard, not in my backyard argument on the ground, the, you know, the, the yimby argument is let's build more because we have a shortage. And they are right. Like we absolutely have a shortage of housing. And, you know, we, we do need to build a lot more. And then the NIMBY argument of, of many, and let's be charitable, you know, the ones that are not, I don't want that person in my neighborhood. The, the ones that are genuine, I, I think, trying to be like, I'm struggling with this is like building more housing is not solving our problem. Like the problem, you know, when we build it, it's not like prices go down. Prices just seem to go up even more. And the reality is, is like, that is observably true. Like that, you, you actually, if that's your experience on the ground, you have some, that's not a crazy observation that actually is happening. If we go to a different realm, like if we looked at oil, what you would see in the oil market is that the oil market tends to go in a band. So you will have uh, low oil prices. And what low oil prices do is they put a lot of oil on the sidelines. People are not drilling new wells. They're not uh, going out and doing more exploration because prices are low. You can't justify it. Then all of a sudden prices go up and all this like forces of production come into play and start, you know, pumping more oil and looking for more oil and drilling more wells that produces more supply. Then price goes back down and you start to take supply off the sideline. It's a cycle and you can actually look at the history of oil prices and see this cycle. The problem with oil is that every now and then, the way that this cycle adjusts, it's not nice and even. It is spiky. So you'll get these huge spikes where all of a sudden oil is $160 a gallon. And it's like, oh my gosh, or a barrel of oil is $160. And then it will go to like last year, minus 40. And you have these like insane shifts and people financially play those shifts. They invest in hedges, they invest in options, they invest in things that, that play this kind of speculative thing. If we allowed housing to do that, if we actually had housing markets that were completely financialized, that is how they would operate. You would actually have these huge run-ups in price, and then you would have these massive crashes, and then you have these huge run-ups in price, and then you'd have these massive crashes. And it would sit in a band for most of the time, but you'd have these frothy moments and these underserved moments where things just went apocalyptic. Here's the thing. We can't do that in housing. And the housing market doesn't work like that. And the, the governments can't do that. The homeowners can't do that. People can't do that. So we put all of these controls in with the housing market. When we do that, the problem comes back to we can't then allow the, the speculative finance part of it because we can't tolerate the crashes and, and the bubbles and the peaks and the stuff like we do with oil because we can't do that in housing, we also can't have the financialization 
that we have in an oil market in housing. It doesn't work. It actually wrecks and destroys the market. And that is essentially, to me, what we have done is we have disconnected this market from reality. And we're all trying very desperately to figure out what to do about it. My argument has been for a long time, all the things we are trying to do may be marginally helpful or marginally beneficial or moving us in the right direction, but they're not going to meaningfully help things until we fix the financialization part of this. Well, that's going to be really difficult to do because investors have zero incentive to make housing a less desirable investment. And most homeowners probably feel the same way, especially the the baby boomer generation. They have most of their wealth tied up in their home, and they're also a very important voting block. So it's but the, like, but no- the investors, I, I do feel like there's an important thing to understand about investors, and that is that. They want to be in as long as the price is going up, but they also want an exit that they can get out quickly. That's the thing about investment money that's different than homeownership is investors are always have one foot out the door. When this asset class changes, I want to be at near the exit. And so, you know, it's going to function differently. Yeah, well, and and the the people who own homes are probably going to be the ones getting hurt by this because the investors will exit when it's no longer a good investment. I think similarly to the subdivisions that are being built and those are not sustainable in terms of infrastructure. Once the infrastructure bill comes due for those subdivisions, those investors will be so long gone, they, you know, the, the cities are going to be left holding the bag. So with all of the different remedies that we talked about, it, it almost seems like people should just be aware of this issue because it's almost like don't hate the player, hate the game. Like like sellers should be aware that people are people are buying houses and, and investing in them in this way. And although that may not completely remedy the issue, it's almost like we should start with the sellers to say, hey, be careful about who you're selling your house to because um, they, they may never step foot in this neighborhood. Sell it to Daniel when he writes you a nice letter. <laughs> look, look, for, look for Daniel and his wife, a beautiful family, conscientious, love their community. That's who you want to sell to, right? Yeah, but not all sellers feel that way, unfortunately. And I, I think that... <laughs> it, I, the person who sold me my house was actually an investor who flipped it to me. No way. That's hilarious. <laughs> but, but she explicitly wanted somebody who was going to live there. Don't do what I That was kind of a, we we lucked into that. Yeah, good guy investor. There you go. Our letter was just really (laughs) persuasive, really tugged at the heartstrings. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think we'll leave it at that because we're running out of time today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything captivating our attention. I'll start with you, Daniel because I haven't talked to you in a while. What has been on your radar? Well, my daughter just turned one last weekend, so I have been reading such captivating classics lately as um, Stack the Cats, uh, <laughs> The Pout Pout Fish, and Snuggle Puppy. Um, that, that's kind of been, been my reading list lately. Wow. Um, and there are about 20 more where those came from. But. Very challenging reads. Um, challenging to get her to actually flip the pages one at a time and not just like i'm gonna pick the book up and fling it around (laughs) but um she loves books but she loves them as objects um yeah yeah she's she's just fascinated by what how what are all the different ways i can manipulate this thing and as spending time with dad and as spending time with dad yeah 
Yeah, that's very <laughs> sweet. <laughs> well, Chuck, what do you have for us today? I feel like my favorite uh, with Stella in particular, the second one was this book called Tiger Can't Sleep. So I maybe I need to send that one over <laughs> to you, Daniel. That was a that's a classic. Well, first of all, baseball season has started now. So I am so happy to see real games. And my team is great this year. So it's going to be lots of fun. We're going to beat up on Kansas City a lot this year. We'll so see. Count on it. We'll see about <laughs> that. I started a new book called Medieval Cities, Their Origins and the Revival of Trade by Henry, I can't even say his last name, Perenni. Uh Anyway, it's not like the most captivating read, but I kind of have wanted to read this book for a long time, just about basically like how medieval cities uh, kind of reestablished themselves and, and, and started to grow and, and their form and function. It's been interesting. It's been, I, I feel like I've gotten a few nuggets out of it and I'm going to stick with it for a while longer. Fascinating. Well, since we're talking about children's books, I'll add that I have this plant <laughs> called a, I think it's called God's tongue or something like that. It has lots of different names, maybe a snake plant or something. But it's grown so much from its original size that it's sitting on my kitchen table and it's in this teeny tiny pot and it just keeps growing and I haven't replanted it. And it reminds me of that children's book with the fish that gets too big for its bowl and then you have, they had to bring it into the bathtub and it got too big and then they bring it into the basement. So every time I look at that plant, I think of that book now. <laughs> um, so this weekend I'll be replanting it. Another thing that I'm really excited about, I'm going to talk about the weather. It's officially springtime and we've had a lot of rain. So that means that um, in this part of the world, it is morel season. So every year we go out into the deep woods. Oh, yeah, you're a mushroomer, aren't yes. you? Yes, we are mushroom hunters. So this time of the year, we go out into the woods and we look for those little mushrooms and we bring our dog and it's a good time. And we have a few of our spots, but... You know, if we go into like state parks too and just kind of rummage around, it's so much like it's so much fun. And I don't like eating mushrooms, so it's more about finding them. So I'm really excited about that. This will be the first weekend that we go out and do it. I realize that there's a lot of people who do this. I would have this latent fear if I did it that I would pick the like poisonous mushroom. Like that would be that would be my I, I'm sure that there's a way to do this where that doesn't happen. And but I don't like mushrooms. And so I would like, why would I risk the downside <laughs> for like such low upside? You know, they're so specific looking. If you look up what a morel mushroom looks like, I don't know that there are mushrooms that are poisonous that look like this mushroom. It's almost like you can't miss it. There, there are false morels that you can find, um, but I think you can still eat those. I don't think those are going to kill you. But it, it is cool because you do see other kinds of mushrooms when you're out in, in the woods. And it, the diversity of like fungus is amazing, especially in the springtime. So it's actually pretty cool to see see what's out in the woods. And hopefully we don't run into any any coyotes or, or bears. So, you know, that would be fun uh, no. for me, more so Ooh. than the mushrooms. Ooh. No bears? No no, uh, no, no bears. I'll pass we were bears. Uh, we were walking. It was two years ago. We were walking in Glacier, and we, we just came up over the hill, and there's a grizzly bear. She was walking away from us, and she was clearly like 
kind of drunk on on berries and stuff and ch- chillaxing. She was she was in the she was in like her best state and not at all concerned about us. She was going downhill and we were uphill. So just the momentum of her was taking her away. And it was kind of one of these situations where I felt comfortable standing there and watching her, even with my kids. And it was amazing. Wow. Really, really cool. Yeah. There's actually quite a few black bears in Missouri. Actually, I'll put a plug out because I always share this with people. There's something called the Missouri Bear Project, and they have a really cool website where they track the bears in Missouri and their, their movement patterns. And I find it very interesting for some reason, even though I'm incredibly afraid of bears and I'm always kind of nervous when we go to certain parts of the state. Um, that we're going to run into one. So hopefully we don't run into any bears. I, I've i only seen a bear when I was in uh, Wyoming. So I haven't seen a Missouri bear yet, but they do exist. It's so funny because like black bears to me are like teddy bears. And I would have no problem like running into a black bear or a coyote in the woods, like not at all. But Daniel, when I come down by where you're at, I'm like, I don't want to go near any ditch because of the chance there's an alligator or a, or a snake or something. And I'm like, this this state is terrifying. <laughs> See, and I, I, I'm a Minnesotan originally, but I've gotten like very comfortable with gators now. I'll occasionally see one out for a walk and it's just like, they are so lethargic and so uninterested in your like existence that you just like, I'm, I'm not going to get close, but I'll, I'll admire a 10 foot gator and then I'll like turn around and go the other way. But it just like is completely indifferent to me. Daniel, I don't know if you know this, but I was in Orlando a few weeks ago um, and I, we were walking next to a lake and I asked my friend, are there alligators in here? Should we be nervous? And she just nonchalantly was like, oh, yeah, it's like sometimes there are. It's not a big deal. I've always been very afraid of alligators, and it's amazing to me that people in Florida don't seem to be concerned about this looming threat um, all the time. I would be terrified. <laughs> like, I, I mean, if you if you own a small dog and you live near water, like you should absolutely be concerned and like take precautions. But for an alligator to attack a human, like it has happened, but it's like shark attacks. It's like. It's really okay. I'm, I don't like shark attacks either. Yeah, I'm afraid of sharks too. <laughs> There's like 10 a year in the US. Like, if it's even, I don't know. I don't want to be one in 10. I'll take my chance with, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take my <laughs> chance with the black bear in the woods. Like, um, we're, we're much, much better. Yeah. I know that the black bear in the woods does not actually want to eat me, you know, like, would not enjoy that in any way. And I think the alligator would actually. The alligator would enjoy it. They yeah, absolutely would. That is yeah, that's true. the difference. Yeah, you're more aerodynamic in the air, out or of water. Other, you're ever being chased by an alligator, you just zigzag. I've heard uh, that. Yeah, I, I, I kind of doubt that this is like actual practical advice, but <laughs> really, they can't turn. You just run in a zigzag pattern. <laughs> the gator will never get you. Word to the wise. All right. All right. Lots so, of advice. So we're turning into uh, crocodile hunter or whatever. Yeah, is that is that where we're going? The show is devolving. (laughs) The show's devolving in a National Geographic, Uh, (laughs) like a hack version of National Geographic. (laughs) Yeah, when you run into a bear, you just stand up and look big. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Always fun to talk to you, Daniel. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks. Thanks.